0: Good evening and welcome to Mountain Talk here on WMMT, your community radio station. I'm your host, Parker Hobson. On tonight's show, we're celebrating Jean Ritchie, the renowned Appalachian folk musician, singer, and songwriter. Jean was from right here in the mountains in Perry County, Kentucky, and tonight we'll hear two Apple Shop productions on her life and music. The first is a radio documentary from the series Southern Songbirds, women pioneers of country and old time music, produced by Rachel Goodman with WMMT in 2001. In this episode, Goodman takes us along as Richie recounts her journey from the Appalachian Mountains to the thriving folk scene of New York City in the 1960s and shares the traditional ballads she grew up with as well as songs she wrote herself. Stay tuned.
1: The sound of a coal train echoes off the steep mountains near Hazard, Kentucky as it does every afternoon. We're sitting on the front porch of a log cabin made from virgin timbers, the giant kind that covered these hills before the coal companies logged and strip mined the area. The cabin belongs to one of America's most revered folk musicians, Jean Ritchie, who was born and raised in Kentucky and left home to share her family's music with the rest of the world. Welcome to Southern Songbirds, a tribute to women in old time and early country music. I'm your producer and host, Rachel Ann Goodman. Today we'll visit with folk singer and dulcimer pioneer Jean Ritchie and we'll hear some stories and songs from the Appalachian Mountains of Eastern Kentucky. Jean Ritchie became internationally known as a folk singer and songwriter during the folk music revival of the 1960s. She's recorded over two dozen records and written several books about her life in the mountains. Jean Ritchie, the youngest of 14 children, grew up singing these old ballads with her family when they'd gather in the evening after working in the fields.
2: It was always a wonder to me how families living close to one another could sing the same song and sing it so different. Or how one family would sing a song among themselves for years and their neighbor family never know that song at all. Because we Richies love to sing so well, we always listened to people singing songs we didn't know. And we caught many good ones that way. In my time, Wilmer and I would take turns getting the cows home in the evening, and there was always a great temptation for me to stop at Aunt Mary Ann Ingalls on the way back. Well, in the cool of the day, twilight time, we'd come down from the pasture, me and the old cow, Bill and her heifer. And I knew that the cattle would go on home by themselves. I'd turn them through the last bars and watch for a while to see if they really meant business about going home, and then I'd take the side road down to the Ingalls. Usually what took me down that way was the sound of lonesome singing coming from their kitchen.
1: Jean Ritchie's descendants first arrived in the Appalachian Mountains in 1786 and they brought with them ballads from England and Ireland. The Ritchie family's music, much of it unchanged by time, was recorded by folklorist Cecil Sharp in the 1920s and later by Alan Lomax in the 1950s for the Library of Congress.
2: The first thing my dad and the youngins did when he moved the family to Perry County was to clear some new ground on one of the steep hillsides grubbing up the roots and rolling down the logs for lumber and firewood and wrestling with the rocks which lay thick on all the ground. It was the stubborn pride that made you keep up with your own row, even though the pace set by the older workers would almost burst your lungs, and it was the heaven in the cool shade at the end of the round, the ecstasy in a gourd full of spring water, the foolery in a snatch of song. Our singing in the cornfield ran to funny songs, they made us laugh and lifted us back to our hose in a good humor and not so tired. After a long drink from the gourd, Kitty or Truman would likely begin to hum Old Tyler, the song that isn't actually funny, but one that we could never get finished because of laughing, and we'd all sing it. And Dad would generally always
3: let us finish the song before he hollered back to work. Old Tyler was up. A- we thought he'd treat a coon, but when we come to find it out, Old Tyler was a barking at the moon, Lord, Lord, Old Tyler was a barking at the moon. Old Tyler was a good old dog. We thought he'd treat a squirrel, but when we come to find it out, Old Tyler was a barking at the world, Lord, Lord, Old Tyler was a barking at the world. Old Tyler started down the road. He started in a run He had not gone but a little bitty piece When he met Allegheny with the gun, Lord, Lord When he met Allegheny with the gun Now, Tyler, you did suck them eggs And this'll be your doom He sent a steel ball through his heart And laid old Tyler in his tomb, Lord, Lord He laid old Tyler in his tomb
1: Folk singer Jean Ritchie from a record based on her first book, Singing Family of the Cumberlands, released in 1958. By the time Jean Ritchie left home in the late 1940s, vast changes were afoot in eastern Kentucky. With the coal-based economy in a slump, mountain people who had relied on mining for their livelihood were forced to move to the urban north to find work. Jean Ritchie was among the fortunate who were able to attend college. She graduated from the University of Kentucky then moved to New York to be a social worker at the Henry Street Settlement. She had no idea at that time that her music was something special.
2: When I got to New York, there was Burl Ives and uh, Susan Reed was just, just sort of beginning to decline in popularity. And uh, then there was Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, and all those people were very strong around town. And I just sort of fell into the scene. Certainly if I'd stayed home, I never would have got that, uh, that kind of recognition.
1: By the late 1950s, folk music was becoming increasingly popular, especially in the northeastern United States. Folk music festivals sprang up almost overnight, with artists like Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and the Weavers as headliners. Gene Ritchie began to garner a large following through these festivals, appealing to those who preferred the traditional ballads sung Appalachian style. Oh bald eagles sail around, daylight is
3: gone. Oh bald eagles sail around, daylight is gone. Backwards and fards across the floor, daylight is gone. Backwards and fards across the floor, daylight is gone. You swing here and I swing there, daylight is gone. You swing here and I swing there, daylight is gone. Meet Miss Maggie on the floor, daylight is gone. Meet Miss Maggie on the floor, daylight is gone. You go ride the old gray mare, I'll go ride the wrong. You get there before I do, leave my girl alone. Big fine house in Baltimore, 16 stories high. her little girl lives up there, hope she'll never die. Old oh, bald eagle sail around, daylight is gone. Old oh, bald
1: eagle sail around, daylight is gone. While in New York, Jean Ritchie met and then later married photographer George Pickow. Jean reflects on her life both as a mother and a musician and how she's managed to balance the two. They were small then in the 60s and I always had to
2: consider them and either take them with us or uh, make other arrangements for them. So it wasn't really, uh, I couldn't go all out for a career. I didn't want to anyway. I had a lot of interests and I was doing some writing and some recording and some traveling around, and a lot of housewifing and mothering. <laughs> I've never really had any, many problems being a woman. Uh, I've never been bound by anything or, or repressed by anybody, or I've done pretty much what I wanted to. I was lucky in, in marrying a, a husband who
1: says every once in a while, you need to get out and work some, you're getting stale. <laughs> Jean Ritchie is perhaps most famous for popularizing the dulcimer as a folk instrument. The traditional way of playing the Appalachian dulcimer is to set it on your lap, making chords with your left hand and strumming with your right. Gene Ritchie plays with a small stick or dowel pressed down on the strings to make the chords.
2: Started to go on subways with the dulcimer in New York. Why it was, people would just crowd around me and say, Oh, what is that? Play something for us. And I said, Well, you couldn't hear it in here, you know. <laughs> but they would put their ear down and I'd pluck a string for them, and you'd think that I'd played a, a concerto or something. They would say, Oh, is that what it sounds like? <laughs> and um, so I finally got a case for it. And then policemen would stop me and say, What have you got in there? <laughs> They thought, I, they thought it was a machine gun or something. <laughs> oh, we had a lot of fun.
1: While traditional hymns and ballads were Jean Ritchie's first love, she began writing songs to express ideas that the old songs couldn't speak to. In the late 1950s, the world didn't exactly welcome female songwriters with open arms. For years, Jean Ritchie wrote under an assumed name, hoping that her songs would sell better if people didn't know a woman wrote them. I
2: thought that um, the songs themselves would have a better chance if they had a man's name on them so i used my grandfather's name his name was jonathan and they called him than Uh, so i used than hall also my mother was still alive and people would criticize they would say to her your daughter's out there, you know, marching in the protests and doing all that kind of thing. And I didn't want her, her worried about it and bothered about it, so I just put, some, I put another name on, it, on the songs. And they did uh, better because a man's name was on them, I think.
3: In the morning! Big leather wood, algome block. Now it's old blue diamond, too. Well, the pits, they're closed. John L. had a dream But it's broken it seems Now our union's letting us down Last week they took away My hospital car Said why don't you leave this old town Oh it's go downtown What did you bring me down in the mud.
1: While writing songs under the name Than Hall may have been advantageous, Jean Ritchie recalls a few instances where her pen name confused people. Once, a fellow musician accused her of stealing one of her own songs, Blue Diamond Mines. One
2: day I was here, and
1: he called me up,
2: and he said, Are you uh, Jean Ritchie? And I said, Yes. And he said, Well, I I hear that you claim to have written Blue Diamond Mines. I said, Well, I did write it. And he said, there was a long pause, and then he said, well, I have a friend who says that he has heard Than Hall sing it personally. <laughs> I got a good life out of that. I said, I am Than Hall.
1: <laughs> As the 1960s came to a close and the 1970s got underway, Strip mining came to Eastern Kentucky, and terms like mountaintop removal crept into the vocabulary of the mountain people. Horrified by the destruction of the land, Gene Ritchie wrote Black Waters.
3: She sings a sweet tongue. In the roots of the tall timber, she nests with her young. But the hillside explodes with the dynamite's roar. And the voices of the small birds will sound there no more. And the hillsides come a sweating song. Oh
2: always um, been a, a very um, personal song for me because I wrote it about the head of the holler up there where they had started to strip mine. When I did the song uh, all the places we used to play were suddenly not there anymore and the place called the Tater Knob <laughs> and they took half of it and left the other half standing <laughs> so that it was this little knob on the hill was just sliced down the middle and uh, all the contours of the land were changed and the worst thing was that the water, uh, this little branch that runs down here, it became a dead stream. All the minnows and crawdads and everything died. And um, it was full of silt and, and red sulfur and black coal dust. So that's that's where the song came from.
3: There's a place on this earth that is dearer to me than all of the cities of pleasure. Where Kentucky's Old North Fork comes singing alone the banks of that little green river. There's an old square log cabin with a garden all around. There's a pig and some chickens and a rusty old hound. And when he's not asleep in his sweet bugle sound goes ringing the high your people so kind, your high hills and mountains always on my mind, and when I turn homeward my heart breaks in song. And I'm safe in his love all surrounded. But more and more urgent the memories call. As the years swift and swifter unceasingly. Your people so- Road by a singing river,
2: willows bending over, cool and green the shade. Whittleding flies low, fishes flash their silver, quiet for the heart here in this hidden glade. Far above me, high on the mountainside, crashing sounds we do not know. Engines fearsome roar, augurs whining bore, ancient rocks scream sudden foe. Oh, my heart is slain, only care and pain can attend betrayal's song. Where are the tears for weeping? What is here for keeping
1: if all the quiet things are gone? I asked Jean Ritchie why people around the world have continued to flock to her concerts for the past 40 years. I think it's
2: because people in cities don't have such a sense of community that we had had when we grew up and that we still have in rural places. It is something that they're wistful about and they they would wish for themselves. And uh, they love it when they come in c- contact with it. I often wonder why I keep on doing what I'm doing, and I guess what the reason is that I had such a happy childhood and uh, lived in such a wonderful community. And I'm just trying to take that feeling to other people. Um, and sometimes I think that that's the only way we can preserve it um, across across gaps. <laughs> You know, and uh, until people can rebuild it again.
3: Children, now our meeting is over, and surely we must part. And if I never any more see you, I will love you in my heart. The Lord will land on the sea. The Lord will land on the shore, the Lord will land on the sea, and we'll shout forevermore.
1: Jean Ritchie continues to perform in concerts throughout the United States and abroad. She's recently appeared in off-Broadway theater, a Hollywood movie, dance performances, and as a solo act. Her songs have been recorded by everyone from Emmylou Harris to Michelle Schacht and from Flatten & Scruggs to Pete Seeger. She comes back to her log cabin in Kentucky when she's not on the road touring or at her other home in Port Washington, New York. But wherever she goes, Jean Ritchie takes a little piece of Kentucky with her to share. You've been listening to Southern Songbirds, a 13-part radio series honoring the women of early country and old-time music. I'm your producer and host, Rachel Ann Goodman. This series is produced at Apple Shop, a media center in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Special thanks to Don Mussel and WMMT Radio. You can write to us with your comments or letters or to receive a free Southern Songbirds listener's guide. The address is Apple Shop. 306 Madison Street, Whitesburg, Kentucky, 41858. Southern Songbirds is made possible in part by grants from the Humanities Councils of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia and the National Endowment for the Arts Folk Arts Program.
0: Again, you're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. Tonight we're celebrating the life and music of Gene Ritchie, who passed away last week at the age of 92. Up next We have the audio from A Program on Gene, produced back in 1981 by Headwaters Television, a project of Apple Shop. The original videotape is part of the early Headwaters Television collection, which was preserved by the Apple Shop archive, with support from the National Historical Publications and Records Commission.
1: This evening, Headwaters visits with Gene Ritchie, the well-known folk musician from Viper, Kentucky. Jean has helped to popularize traditional mountain music throughout the world. Michael Stamper interviewed Jean in her home in Perry County, where she also plays some music for us.
3: Down in some lone valley The wild birds do whistle and their notes do increase. Farewell, pretty Sarah, oh, I bid you adieu, and I'll dream of pretty Sarah. write a fine hand I would write my love a letter that she'd understand
2: mama joined the old regular Baptist church when she was 18. She was married at 17 and had a child by the time she was 18. Joined the church, that's the way you, you know, by the rules you should do it. You should have done it in those days, the the moral, the morale, the the morals of the community. My father should have done the same thing, but he didn't join until he was 85. Uh (laughs) He kind of was a holdout. He would start down the aisle, down here at Jeff, at the Little Zion Church. I've seen him many a time. The preacher would give the call, the invitation, and he'd start down the aisle, and then he'd go back. (laughs) And Mom worked on him all of her life to try to get him to complete that journey, but he was just very shy. He didn't like to put himself out in front of people in the public eye, you know. So he would start to do it, and then he would say, well... He'd go back, but he'd tell, I could hear him talking, and he'd tell, Mom, well, I'm good. I I know as much as those preachers anyway, (laughs) and i read the Bible, and she'd say, But now, Bayless, you ought to get baptized. (laughs) So finally, when he was 85, he decided to play it safe, I guess. (laughs) Well, I think everybody around here knows uh, what a play party is. Um, This is kind of the way my mother told me it got its name. She said that when a new preacher would come through, one of the old regulars or somebody, that they would say, well, the young people would say, we're going to, to over, over to uh, so-and-so's house to dance tonight. And then the preacher would hear about it. And he'd say, well, those young people can't dance. That's sinful, you know. So they got to saying, well, we're going to play games. And uh, as long as there wasn't any fiddle, uh, it was, it was considered just playing games. You could sing a song like Goodbye Girls, I'm Going to Boston, or Charlie's Neat and Charlie's Sweet, and just clap your hands and, uh, and go through the motions of the dance, and, and it would just be called a game. Uh-huh. But if you brought out the fiddle and didn't sing, and you just listened to the music and, and moved to the music, that was dancing, that was the difference. And uh, so my mother used to say, well, we're going to the plays. Instead of going to play games, it got to, the expression got to be going going to the plays and then after a few years it got to be we're going to the play party and that's where the term play party came from and uh, it's still there's still quite a difference between play parties and um, and running sets today you know we, we never did used to refer to even running sets as dancing much because we figured that preachers would be a little more lenient on us if we used that term too <laughs> We run a set. Why well, it was it was really dancing. It was really what you call square dancing today. I started playing the dulcimer when I was too young to remember. I, I must have been. Uh, it was before I was five. I used to. I, I, I can never remember when I couldn't make a tune on it. I. I guess I can remember back to the age of three <laughs> oh, for, for a few things, but I can't remember when I first played the dulcimer. I think it was around there. It, it was always sitting on the fireplace, uh, on the fireboard up over the fireplace. And when Dad wasn't looking, I'd sneak it down and play and make a tune on it. And uh, when I got to be six or seven, he said he undertook to teach me to play then, and I already knew how, and he was much amazed. <laughs> thought I was such a good musician because I just took it right and played it right then, you know. <laughs> hello play. We talked about play parties a while ago. This is a play party song uh, that we never played. It was a game we never played. We just I just heard the song sung a lot of times. Usually um, picked on the banjo, and it's called Jimmy Taylor. Row. I think it means I think it's referring to General Taylor. Row General Taylor role, got to be Jimmy Taylor role over the years. And uh, General Taylor was probably General Zachary Taylor, our 12th president, because he was president, he was the general uh, in the war with Mexico, and this, one, this is a song that talks about the war with Mexico. So this is really an American play party game. And this one is a song that's going to be on the, um, or the, that is on the, the record High Hills and Mountains, the one we talked about, the Greenhays record. Jimmy Taylor.
3: Had a little trouble down in Mexico. Nobody hurt, but Jimmy Taylor. Oh, hi ho, diddle, I, day, hi ho, diddle, I, day. Goes downtown, all the pretty girls they follow him round. hi ho did lie day. Hi-ho, did lie day, and hi-ho, did lie day. Come to the place where the blood was shed, the gals go back and the boys go ahead. hi ho did lie day. Had a little trouble down in Mexico. Nobody hurt but Jimmy Taylor. Oh, hi ho, diddle, I day, hi ho, diddle, I day, and hi ho, diddle,
2: I day. I left home to to do social work. I studied. studied social work at the University of Kentucky. I was their first, um, the first one to sign up in the new department that they formed, social work department. And uh, I majored in social work, and then I went to Henry Street Settlement in New York at, on my first social work job. And uh, I worked for the county board of education in, in Perry County for about a year and a half. And I kept teaching and going back to school and teaching and going back to school making some money to go back to school on. That was the war years, you know, and they were short of teachers. So they'd let you drop out of college and teach. So I'd teach for a semester and then I'd go back to school and did that until I got through. And then I worked for the County Board of Education for Mitch Napier when he was uh, superintendent uh, for two year a year and a half or two years. And then I went to New York to do my first social work job, Henry Street Settlement. And I had a dulcimer with me. I just didn't want to be lonesome up there, you know, so I took one with me. We had one of Jethro Ambery's and uh, I'd uh, play it in my room after after my work was over, and uh, I was working with children with young uh, six, seven, and eight, eight seven, eight, and nine year old girls after school, and we'd play games. So after a while, I started taking my dulcimer down and playing for them, and teachers and settlement workers and friends would go by and look in and say, "What's that?" You know, so that little by little, they started asking me to. Come and play for them, and bring my adults and come to the party. Or um, the a teacher would say, "Come to my school and play for my children." And then you know, that's how I got started, just playing for people like that. Then uh, uh, Alan Lomax, who's a famous folklorist, um, he was at Decca Records then, and I went to someone's, gave me a letter, and told him me to go see him. He was interested in folk music from my my area, and I did, and uh, he recorded. Oh, a lot of my old ballads and old family songs for the Library of Congress, folklore archives. And um, we became friends, and he took me up to um, Oxford University Press and introduced me to the people there, and I did the first book for them uh, called Singing Family of the Cumberlands, and it's still in print. (laughs) It was published in 1955, and this is his 25th anniversary this year, 1980. I think that's why I, I uh, got any kind of um, recognition, really, for my music, is that I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, when I got to New York, there was Burl Ives and uh, Susan Reed was just, just sort of beginning to decline in popularity, and uh, then there was Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, and all those people were very strong around town. And I just sort of fell into the scene, you know. Other people started, and I had this instrument which uh, nobody had ever seen before in New York. And they, they got very excited about this very simple, beautiful American instrument. And so I was asked to play at places where I probably would never have been, or certainly if I'd stayed home, I never would have got that, uh, that kind of recognition. And I never wanted to, to be, you know, f- rich and famous, as they say, and I certainly never got rich uh, on music, but I did get uh, a little bit of um, uh, exposure there and get pretty well known around around town and then around the country. Uh, what excites me about about my music is that people are willing to sit and still and listen to uh, a s- as simple a thing as that, and it sort of encourages me about. whole world, (laughs) that people will are still interested in simple things. They can be beautiful and they're simple but uh, still worth listening to. That's what makes me happy about it. I was invited to go to Japan in 1979, I guess it was, or 78, the 78, I guess, the autumn of 78. And uh, George and I went. Um, I didn't know what I might expect to find there because I just didn't. I was terribly scared because I thought, well, the Japanese—I don't speak Japanese, and they don't—they probably don't speak English. And how are they going to like my music? But it turned out that they were. Uh, There's quite a great interest in there. First, I guess it started with bluegrass, uh, and then it uh, went to old time music, and uh, now it's they're beginning to like just plain old American folk music over there, which is good. <laughs> And uh, I had five concerts, uh, three in Tokyo and two in Kyoto. And uh, we were very well received. The audience was, uh, the places they had me sing were fairly small places because they knew that there wouldn't be a a large audience there for my kind of music. And it made it nice because the rooms were always full and it was uh, uh, small, very nice audiences. And uh, one funny thing that happened uh, was that um, The first night I had a concert in a little theater and it was all full of very polite people and they were all clapping just at the end of songs, very very politely, and I thought, well, they probably don't like it. And then all of a sudden I sang, started to sing one of the old uh, ballads from home, kind of an obscure one, Um, Lord Thomas and Ferry Allender and the Brown Girl, you know, that that old ballad. And as soon as I started playing and singing the first verse, there was this very interested applause all through the house and I thought, it sounds like Bill Monroe playing his hit. I mean, <laughs> but then the next, uh, so I just let it go. I thought it was kind of a funny thing. The next time um, I had a concert the next night and the same thing happened. I played Lord Thomas and Fairylander and I got an applause before us, st- just as I started the song and a lot of applause at the end. And I asked them, I said, I wish you'd tell me what this is all about. I didn't think you knew this. You Anybody in Japan would know this old song. And at the end of the, the concert, a girl came up with a little book, and she said, this is one of our school books, and it was a, uh, she was in high school, and this was one of the school books that they used, and it was a book called Famous, um, Famous Authors, was it American Authors? No, I guess it wasn't, it was just Famous Authors, uh, uh, excerpts from books by Famous <laughs> Authors, and so they had taken, along with uh, Somerset Mom and, uh, uh, I see, I, oh. Honey, who are some of the other authors? Oh, Ernest Hemingway and who else? Oh yeah, William Faulkner, all of the very famous authors that I was very much in awe of. And there I was right alongside of them, Gene Ritchie. (laughs) And they had excerpted that chapter from singing family of the Cumberlands. And uh, they had taken three verses of the song and put it in, and the children were all uh, very excited when I played that song because it was in their school books, and they said, we wanted to know how it comes out, <laughs> how the story turned out. So they were very happy to hear what what the story was and what it was all about. And it was just one of the freaky things that would happen to you in Japan, I guess. I went to the Henry Street Settlement, and one Saturday night, they, they had a sa- the square dance on Saturday night. I mean, they had a uh, there was a band there whose name was Ralph Tiffer-Teller. He was from Tennessee, and so he was. He always called the square dancers. He was the settlement director, um, program director. So every other Saturday night we had a square dance. And uh, one night there was this, this man showed up. This young man showed up to square dance, and he came in and asked me to dance, and I danced with him. Uh, I, they'd, they'd had me sing a little bit in the intermission with my adult and uh, but actually the story was that he'd come down with his girlfriend <laughs> to uh, to look in on a photography class a young young children's photography class and so she was she was always trying to get him to come down to the settlement with her where she had this class and he didn't want to come and he, she finally said there's a redhead down there you might like uh to try to get him to come with her so he came and i was singing and he Afterwards, he told me he didn't like me at all when he first heard me sing, because he thought nobody... He said he said he thought that that was a real happy act I had, <laughs> that nobody could be for real like that. <laughs> and afterwards, he came back, and he saw me playing ping-pong or something with the kids, and he thought, well, she looks a little more real now, and uh, he asked me to go dance, and go out to a square dance somewhere else, and little by little, we got to be friends. Then he went away for a year, and... Uh, when he came back, we decided to get married, so that was my courtship. Well, we, st- we started building on this house about <coughs> four years ago, I guess, and it, uh, it got up in about two years, so we've been spending as much time here as we can since then, um, working on it and living here and enjoying the hills. It's a real good feeling to... Be back home. Of course, my husband is not. He's from New York, so that <laughs> it's a little bit of a tug to get him down here sometime. Uh-huh. He built the house, though. It's his own his own design, and he he likes it here. But he has other ties up there too. That and responsibilities, of course. That, yes, steps. these are old old logs uh, from virgin timber. Uh, we got them in Knott County. They were from old houses that were. Um, going to be destroyed when, the, when the, one of the new highways came through and somebody just saved them, a man named Ambergy. And uh, we went over and we got them from him, hauled them over the mountains over here. But I think some of them were the homes that my relatives lived in over there, because my father is from Knott County. That's, he was the family. When they when they did settle, uh, the first permanent settlement around here was on the head of Clear Creek in what's called Hammond's Gap. I think it's been strip-mined now, but it used to be a beautiful place up there, and there was a kind of a, a swag, a gap in the hills, and it was a big flat meadow up on top, and it was really pretty, and that's where the old family place was. And all around in Knot County then, the, the um, um, children settled around in uh, Lots Creek and, and uh, Clear Creek and Hindman and around in there. So. I'm sure that these logs came from some of my relatives' houses. <laughs> well, as far as I know, uh, they came. The Ritchies, uh, five Ritchies, see, uh, six Ritchie boys came over from Scotland in 1768, and um, came on in, down into the hills uh, a few years later. I guess these hills. They came across, uh, I guess, through Virginia, and uh, and came through there, and. Old grandfather of the family died um, somewhere over on, you know, the on car somewhere, right. they said. And uh, so they, they buried him there, and they just settled because they liked, they, they didn't want to leave the grave. You know, that's the way people, sometimes the way they pick their spots. They didn't want to leave the graves of the ones that died, so they just stayed there. And uh, we've been in this country, I guess, um, hmm, I don't, the riches and the, uh, The Combses and the Halls and all those people came in pretty early. I believe the Combses claimed they came in first, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but a little before us. I don't know if that's true or not, but the Riches did come in shortly, shortly after Daniel Boone. (laughs) I started my record for June Apple, my uh, religious record, uh, uh, hymns that I'm doing for June Apple, and about the same time, just about the same time, we started our own label uh, called Green Haze. The June Apple record is, uh, is all religious songs from around here, I mean, the kind of music that I grew up with, and most people think of me when, when I do programs, um, because they think of me as being an old regular Baptist uh, singer because, uh, as far as religion goes, because when I do a concert, I usually do one old regular Baptist hymn just to show how that, that kind of music was sung, and it's one of my favorite sounds anyway. I love the way they sing in the church. But actually, when when we were growing up as a family, we had all kinds of religious music around us. We had the early gospel groups, we had the Carter family and their religious music, and we had the uh, Roy Acuff, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the hillbilly gospel, and uh, then we had the, the local church, uh, missionary church, and we sang s- some hymns that you know that used to teach us hymns out of the the Methodist old Methodist hymn books and uh, so we had a, a whole variety of, um, of music around us. And actually, religious music has a great variety in it so that um, people are always surprised when they hear this. I have a tape of the album, it's not quite <coughs> out yet, but I've got a test tape and I play it for people and they say, well, I thought it was just gonna be a, a record of hymns. They said, it's a good record, I'll buy it. <laughs> because it does have a lot of variety. It has some accompaniment, has Marion Sumner's uh, fiddling and, and um, on some of the gospel numbers. And John McCutcheon is playing the hammer dulcimer with me on some, and some I do unaccompanied, some I play dulcimer. And and so it's uh, it has a, it's, if you didn't realize that it was a religious record, you might not, you know, you might get almost through it before you f- figure out that, well, look, at all these things are religious. Well, I'm going to play a song on the dulcimer for you, and uh, this is one that'll be on the June Apple record we talked about, the religious record. This is called, my mother called it Evergreen Shore. It's a version of On Jordan's Stormy Banks.
3: On Jordan's Stormy Banks I stand Aww. And be forever blessed When shall I see my father's face And in his bosom rest We shall rest in the fair and happy land Just across on the evergreen shore Sing the song of Moses and the land. evermore There's a place on this earth that is dearer to me than all Where Kentucky's old North Fork comes singing along On the banks of that little green river There's an old square log cabin with a garden all around There's a pig and some chickens and a rusty old hound And when he's not asleep in his sweet bugle sound Goes ringing the high heels all over in Kentucky, your people so kind. We in the garden that day, and the branch water sang like a fountain. That was Papa and Mama that both worked so hard, and they raised thirteen children in the fear of the Lord. And the old songs we sang for our day's work's reward went ringing. So kind your high heart-
0: Again, that was audio from a program on Gene Ritchie, produced in 1981 by Headwaters Television, a project of the Apple Shop. You can find out more at appleshop.org archive. And our thanks to Caroline Rubens for this material. And that does it for our show. Thanks for being with us tonight as we've remembered the great Gene Ritchie. For WMMT, I'm Parker Hobson. Have a great evening.